Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Jesus took the twelve aside and told them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be turned over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him and kill him. On the third day he will rise again. The disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what he was talking about. As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. He called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and ordered the man to be brought to him. When he came near, Jesus asked him, What do you want me to do for you? Lord, I want to see, he replied. Jesus said to him, Receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. When all the people saw it, they also praised God. Heavenly Father, we're very conscious that as we come to your word, we're in the same position as those disciples, that the meaning of it is hidden from us uh, naturally. But Heavenly Father, supernaturally, we know that you can reveal uh, what you want to say to us through your word. And so we pray that you will do that tonight, that as we study together, so you will reveal the meaning to us and it would change our lives. In Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Well, it's great to be here. I want to uh, thank you very much for the warmth of your welcome, those who've already been at other services. Uh, I've enjoyed it very much indeed spending a day with you. Uh, And huge thanks to Paul for inviting me to come here today. Uh, And those of you who've not met me, it's great to see you all, and I hope that I'll get a chance to say hello over coffee. Um, This is is my local church. I spend so much time going around to different churches every Sunday that I don't get much opportunity to be part of a local church near where I live. So meeting up with congregations like you and getting to know you um, is very much my fellowship. So you'll be doing me a great favour if you come up and say hello. Um, and don't, the fact that I'm not wearing a jumper shouldn't put you off. Um, I, I was thinking today as I, I was looking at various things, you know, how, can, how can I be a part of um, what's going on at Fullwood? Um, and um, uh, I, um, particularly after I had a lovely lunch, I thought, well, how can I be part of this? That was, uh, that was very good. But we always ask, how can I be part of things? You know, at school, we can, we can look at a group of friends and wish that we were part of that particular group. Or we can, we can sort of look at a, a particular team uh, playing sport or a, a group playing music and wish that we were part of it. Uh, when I was a student, 
Um, this is when I, before I was a theological student, I was an economics student at LSE. And I very much wanted to be part of the world of politics. Uh, but when I was told that I'd need to join a local party association and be prepared to serve for several years as a local town councillor, I went off the idea. And then after I finished as a student, there were other things I wanted to be part of. You know, how can I get on the housing ladder? How can I be part of the property-owning democracy? Um, and that's, of course, a question that's even uh, you know, more testing these days with the cost of housing. There are all sorts of things that from time to time we'd love to be part of. The biggest thing, though, the greatest thing that we can ever be part of is the kingdom of Christ. And that is the issue in our passage tonight. How can I be part of God's kingdom, of Christ's kingdom? How can I be part of it? Now, the reason I say that that's what the passage is about um, is because uh, in the run-up to this passage, you have been looking at several different types of people who've come across Christ. Uh, so uh, you've, uh, you've looked, for example, at the Pharisee and the tax collector in chapter 18, verses 9 to 14. Uh, you've looked at the little children. You've looked at the rich ruler in verses 18 to 30. And the interesting thing is that you discover as you read through all of these that Jesus seems to act in a very odd way. He, take, take for example the Pharisee and the tax collector. You know, the one who's religious is sent away or doesn't get into the kingdom but the tax collector who's been busy exploiting people all his professional life does. Then you get the rich ruler. You know, a rich man doesn't seem to be able to enter the kingdom of God, but today a beggar can. And then a very moral man, this rich ruler is a very moral man, but he can't seem to get into the kingdom of God, whereas next week you're going to look at Zacchaeus, another exploiter of people, and he can. Now how, how is that? How can it be that these different people some appear to be not able to get into the kingdom of God, and some can. Um, and we're going to have a look at that today, but there's one other preliminary question we need to ask, and it's this. Why should I want to be part of the kingdom of God? Well, there's a little picture of being in Christ's kingdom. It's in verse 43, uh, where after this blind man is healed... Uh, what, what happens to him and the rest of the crowd? Uh, he's completely healed and he follows Jesus, praising God. And when all the people saw it, they also praised God. It's a picture of people enjoying life to the full. And that's what's great about being in Christ's kingdom. It's about being in touch with the one who gives us life. He's, it's the one who gives us life. New life now new life in eternity. And that changes everything for us. You see, when we become followers of Christ, when we acknowledge Christ as the king and decide that we're going to follow him, everything is profoundly changed. We're helped to relate not only to God in a way that we've never done, 
We're helped to relate to one another in new ways so that we don't damage each other. We're given hope for the future. We're given, well, actually, frankly, a more balanced lifestyle because it helps us to sort out what our objectives are in life. It changes things for the better in every way. This morning, when I was talking about Christ's kingdom to the earlier services, I quoted the Times journalist, Matthew Paris, who was talking about his boyhood experience in Africa. And he wrote an article about that time, and it was headed this, um, um, why I, as a, uh, sorry, as an atheist, I truly believe Africa needs God. That was the title of his article. As an atheist... I truly believe Africa needs God. And the reason he said that was because in his boyhood, he had seen traditional African life, and then he looked at the Africans who were converted by the missionaries, converted to Christianity. And he said about those that were converted that they appeared to be liberated in some way. He said there was a liveliness, a curiosity, an engagement with the world that seemed to be missing in traditional African life. They stood tall. Being in Christ's kingdom is a profoundly humanizing thing. And it is a wonderful thing. It is uh, the kingdom of life. So that's why we want to be part of it. But how does it happen if Jesus turns away a morally good man but accepts a morally bad man? Well, Uh, The answer is found in two points from this passage. Here's the first. Jesus' death accomplishes everything. Jesus' death accomplishes everything. Look again, if you will, at verse 31, the start of our passage tonight. Jesus took the twelve aside and told them we're going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man, will be fulfilled. And he then goes on to say what that's going to involve. He will be turned over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. On the third day, he will rise again. Now look at the disciples' reaction in verse 34. The disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they didn't know what he was talking about. Now, why not? I mean, what's so difficult to understand about that? Someone says that he's going to be spat at and mocked and scourged, and he's going to be killed. Isn't it clear what he's saying? But it says the meaning was hidden from them. And in fact, in verse 34, it comes three times that they didn't grasp it. It's stressed time and again. Now, why? Were they extraordinarily thick? Well, I don't think so. Because back in chapter 9 of Luke, they've recognised that Jesus is the Christ. They have got that far. So what was it about what he said that they couldn't understand? And the answer is, they could not understand how the great king who they had recognised could go through that sort of experience. They couldn't believe he was referring to himself. You see, their minds were so full of part of what the prophets taught in the Old Testament, 
that they could not take on board everything the prophets taught in the Old Testament. So, um, um, you know how it is when your minds are so full of one thing that you can't possibly bring yourself to think uh, differently about something else. Um, Take, for example, uh, our government's attitude to Brexit. You know, our government hadn't really prepared for Brexit, had it, before the vote happened in the referendum? Because although it was a clear possibility, no one could really bring themselves to believe that that would ever happen. So their minds were closed to it. Or um, uh, take, for example, politicians around the world um, as they uh, were looking at the US election. How many politicians around the world were completely unguarded in what they said about Donald Trump? Loads of them, including our own. Why? Well, because they just couldn't believe there would be any other outcome than Hillary Clinton being elected. You see, there are ways in which we can close our minds to some things because they're so full of something else. And that's what was happening with the disciples. They had got so hooked on the parts of the Old Testament that said, when God's king comes, he will come in great power and glory. But they couldn't see anything else. And there is plenty in the prophets about the king who comes. Take the very last book of the Old Testament. The very last book of the Old Testament is Malachi. Or as I once heard someone call him, that Italian prophet Malachi. Um, uh, Look at um, Malachi um, on um, page 961. Page 961. So on page 961, you've got chapter 3 of the Italian prophet. And in verse 1, it says, See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. And so it goes on with this description of the power of this king who is going to arrive with his people. And that's, of course, what the disciples were thinking. What they weren't thinking was that there's plenty also in the prophets about the suffering that the Messiah has to go through before his glory. Suffering first, glory second. So that's why as you go on past our passage tonight and you go on into the rest of Luke, you find Luke talking about some of these other prophets and what they said, or rather Jesus talking as it's reported by Luke. So just flick on, if you would, to Luke chapter 20, verse 17. Luke 20, verse 17. Jesus has uh, just told uh, the uh, religious authorities that he's talking to um, about a vineyard where the owner ends up sending his son in order to get produce from the vineyard and the tenants of the vineyard say, let's kill him and then the vineyard will be ours. 
And then verse 17, Jesus looked directly at them and asked then, what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. He quotes Psalm 118. And he says, that's talking about me. You reject me, the stone, and you will find that I become the stone that crushes you. That's what Psalm 118 was leading to. If you do that rejection, if you strike me down, God will make me more powerful. Now let's look on to chapter 22, verse 37. You see how he's teed up this idea of his rejection. Chapter 22, verse 37. It is written, said Jesus, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. Now, which bit is he quoting there? Well, he's quoting Isaiah 53. And Isaiah 53 is all about the suffering servant of God who is going to give his life on behalf of God's people in order to save them from their sin. So let's look at the bit that he quotes. Let's turn to Isaiah 53. Uh, You'll find that on page 740. Page 740. I'm in fact going to point out that the bit that he quoted is in page 741. So look at page 741. And at the top of the left-hand side of page 741, verse 12, just read down a bit. Because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. That's the bit Jesus quoted. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. This, says Jesus, is the bit that's going to be fulfilled in him. He bore the sins of many. So Jesus is bearing the sins of many, he says, when he is going to be killed. He takes our sins, and as he dies, he bears the punishment for them. He had no reason to be punished himself, because he lived the perfect life. But he took the blame for us. Now, why did he need to do that? Well, the answer is because God's kingdom is a place of perfection. It's a place where we are not going to encounter the pain we experience here and now. We're not going to encounter the wars and the hardship. We're not going to come across those moral dilemmas that we face now. Because it's going to be a perfect place. Perfect because it's made up of perfect people. 100% perfection. Now, if you think of it in those terms, you realise, of course, that 
none of us, me definitely included, are going to make it. Not on our own. We can only make it if those things which have marked our lives, and you will know what's marked your life, you will know what goes on in your heads, the things you've covered up and, and, and nobody else knows about, the fantasies you've indulged, the selfishness that has informed your action, but you've presented it as inevitable and, and hard-hitting. All of those things that have marked our life are only be in Christ's kingdom if Christ bears my sins if they are offloaded onto him and he bears the penalty for them, not me. That, you see, is why the morally good ruler couldn't be part of God's kingdom because he was relying on his own record. And of course, however good he was, he's not good enough. And that's why someone like Zacchaeus, who you'll be looking at next week, could be accepted because all his sins were borne by Jesus. Now the disciples did not understand this. And today also, people don't understand this. They can hear this message about what Jesus does for us, but they can fail to grasp it. And they can fail to grasp it largely because they find it impossible to hear it. I mean, yes, of course they hear it, but they, don't, they, they can't believe it, they can't take it on board for themselves. There are plenty of people around, for example, who say that this idea that God has got to punish sin and that somehow our sin can be offloaded onto Christ and therefore God has got to punish Christ, they say that's an offensive doctrine. Something like 10 years ago, 9 to 10 years ago, Geoffrey John, the Dean of St Albans, gave a Lent talk on Radio 4 where he said that this thought of God punishing was pretty repulsive. And he went on, the most basic truth about God's nature is that he is love, not wrath and punishment. But you see, the two are not mutually exclusive. We, I, I love the fact that God is a just God. I love the fact that he isn't careless about all the injustice in the world. I mean, if you get worked up by injustice, isn't it good to know that God does as well? And one day he's going to do something about it. Nobody will escape. Everything is laid bare before God and all injustice will be judged by him. And isn't it good that it will? Because it means nobody's going to get away with these things. Um, uh, I was reading in today's Sunday Times... Um, I think it was a French actress who, who had accused the photographer, um, David Hamilton, of raping her as a teenager, and he's just died. And, and she said how cheated she felt, that he, she hadn't been able to, to, to bring him to justice. Nobody will escape God's justice. Isn't that good? Isn't it good? But of course, as soon as I say that... I realise that I'm condemning myself. Because if nobody's going to escape God's justice, then neither am I. All of the wrong things I've said and done and thought 
I'm not going to escape either. And it's right that I shouldn't. It's right that God should punish. Because if he doesn't punish, there's no such thing as justice, is there? He's got to do it. But I'm sunk. But in God's love for me, because he loved me so much, he took the punishment himself that I deserved. Isn't that amazing? He said, I I, I love him so much that I'm going to take all of that and put it on myself and take the punishment he deserves. It's a wonderful expression of love. The two, punishment and love, are not mutually exclusive. And they're not mutually exclusive in the Bible. Let's just look back. Uh, Don't bother to turn to it if you don't want to. But Isaiah 53 again, that passage that Jesus quoted and said it was fulfilled in himself. Let me read to you from the start of Isaiah 53, where we read this. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed. Now, you can't say the Bible doesn't teach a God of wrath. You can't say the Bible doesn't teach God's punishment because it's there. But what you can say is God is a God of love and he took the punishment on himself. And that's why it's such good news that all we have to do to be reconciled to God, to enter his kingdom, that great place which gives us life, The only thing we have to do is trust what Jesus did on the cross for us. See, we have two options. We can either trust ourselves, you know, I'm good enough to be accepted by God. You know, God's jolly lucky to have me, really. Uh, I can only improve things in heaven. He'll weigh up the good I've done against the odd bad things I've done. It'll clearly come out okay. But you see, there's nothing in Luke 18 that argues in favour of that, is there? God's standard is 100% perfection. So the alternative is to trust Christ to bear our sins. And when we do that, well, we know he has carried them and died with them, leaving us completely free of their stain. So first then, uh, we've uh, got uh, Jesus Christ's death achieving everything. Now secondly, the second point is this. Jesus' mercy can embrace everyone. Uh, We come now to this story of the blind beggar. Because it follows on immediately after Jesus' prediction of his death and the fact that the disciples didn't understand. And the blind beggar, uh, clearly it's it's intended to be a historical record of what actually took place, but Luke places this story immediately after 
the disciples not understanding because he wants to use it as a visual aid. You see, we've just been told in verse 34 that the disciples didn't understand and that what Jesus meant was hidden from them. And then here we have the blind beggar, clearly a picture of the disciples' state. They just couldn't see. And thus we meet this man. Blind, powerless, needy, begging by the roadside. But when he's told Jesus is passing by, you can't shut him up. He calls out for mercy and he's so desperate that he doesn't stop. Now you might say, oh, well, that's typical of people who are begging for money. They go on and on and on until you give in. Take those charity appeals. I don't know how many you get through your door. I get loads of charity appeals. They seem to just keep on and on. And I think the reason is that they hope they'll sort of wear people down. Now, it may be that things will get better because do you remember that dreadful case of, of um, Olive Cook who at the age of 92 took her own life uh, because people felt that she had been sort of, she was so oppressed by all of these calls by charities for her to give money to them that she didn't know how to cope. Apparently she ended up receiving 260 begging letters a month and, 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 and had taken out 27 direct debits to charities. So may, you know, is that what the beggar's doing? Just keeping on in the hope that people will give in? But actually that doesn't seem to be what's happening in this passage. This beggar seems to be different. You see, uniquely in Luke, he calls out to Jesus, Jesus, son of David. That's not a title that others use when they're addressing Jesus in Luke. It's the title that's given to the Messiah, the great saviour king of Israel. So he clearly knows important things about who Jesus is. And while he spends his time by the roadside begging for money from others, with Jesus, when Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? He says, Lord, let me recover my sight. Or Lord, I want to see. And Jesus says to him, receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. And then as we saw earlier, the passage finishes in verse 43 with this great picture of restored life in Christ's kingdom. Now, why did Jesus say that to him? Receive your sight, your faith has healed you. I mean, what? surely all that Jesus was doing was showing compassion for a needy man. And because he's able miraculously to cure people, that's what he was doing. So why did he say to this man that his faith had healed him? And I think the answer is because coming at this place within chapter 18, amongst all of these stories of different people, some of whom have been accepted and some of whom haven't been by Christ, what he's telling us is that the only way any of us can be in Christ's kingdom is by putting our faith in what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. You see, the beggar doesn't come to Jesus and offer Jesus anything. Uh, Lord, look, I've, I've managed to pick up 20 quid so far today. Uh, you can have it if you give me my sight. He doesn't do that at all, does he? He just casts himself on the mercy of Christ. Lord, I want to see. 
and Jesus heals him. The point is clear, isn't it? Jesus can save anyone who begs for mercy. A beggar, a tax collector, even little children, verse 15. But if we're going to rely on our own reputation for being good, upright people, well, we won't be included in Christ's kingdom. Now, we're not going to be able to do that. We're not going to be able to cast ourselves on Christ unless we understand what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. But if we do understand what Jesus did when he died and settled our sin for us, if we do understand that, then we will know that there is no sin that he cannot forgive, however great it may be. Uh, I heard a preacher uh, talking um, a year ago about how he had been with a Bible study group looking at this particular passage and they'd made a list in their Bible study group of the types of people who they thought of as really good people. And on a flip chart, they, they wrote the sort of people at the top of their flip chart. So doctors and nurses, you know, right up there at the top, you'll be relieved to learn. And um, uh, then they made a list of the people who they thought were bad people. And they put them at the bottom. Uh, so that's where, you know, paedophiles and so on went. And then the, 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 the leader of the group went across and put the name of Jesus at the very bottom to show that he died to take away all of those sins. And the next day, they, they left the flip chart uh, around, and the next day he came in, um, and the cleaner had come in to the church and, um, and was standing in front of the flip chart. And she turned to him and said, what's Jesus doing down there with all those people? She was horrified. But that's just the point, isn't it? There is no sin too big for Jesus to carry. If we'll just turn to him and ask for mercy. And that's all we have to do. It's tremendously good news, isn't it? Have you ever done that? Have you ever asked for mercy? You thought you were going on okay in life? You, you don't need anyone to show you mercy because you're doing all right? Well, according to these standards, there's a big problem. And we'll only overcome it by casting ourselves on Christ for mercy. And if we do that, well, everyone can be covered by what he's done for us. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we want to thank you that your love for us was so great that in Jesus Christ you took away all our sin when we turn to you and ask you for mercy. Heavenly Father, you know all of the things that have marked our lives. You know all of the ways we've disappointed even ourselves. But we know too that in your kingdom, 
there is life. Life that we start to get an inkling of here and now and we know will be perfectly made available to us in the future. And Heavenly Father, we long to be part of your kingdom. And we pray, therefore, that you will show mercy to each one of us. Lord, tonight, uh, where there are people who've never turned to you for mercy, and they're doing so now, Lord, thank you that in Jesus Christ you can carry all our sins and that you delight to show mercy to whoever turns to him. And so, Lord, help us to live our lives thankfully, joyfully, because of all that Jesus has done for us. And seek to follow him, just like these people did at the end of our reading, knowing that with him there is fullness of life. We ask these things in his name. Amen.